It is Adele, a screen. Leave your name, number, and favorite album of all time. I'll get back to you as soon as I can. Thanks for calling. Have a great day. Hello, Alex. This is Don Felder. Uh, uh, my favorite album of all times. Wow, it's probably B.B. King, The Jungle. Anyway, uh, I was supposed to call you at 10.30. It's uh, 10.31, and your voicemail is there. So I uh, hope you're available. I'll try you back in about five minutes. Thanks. End of message. Now, it's not every day that a former eagle uh, leaves you a message on your cell phone, uh, and it's also not every day that you miss a phone call from a former eagle who is calling your cell phone. But I did, and he did, and, uh, and that's what happened. Don Felder did indeed call, and I did indeed not pick up because I wasn't there. There was a scheduling miscommunication, but guess what? We did get it together, and we did do the interview, and you are about to hear it. But I wanted you to hear the message first because I thought it was pretty cool. So, all right, enough of that. Let's get to the show. This is Stereo Embers, the podcast. Check this out. You know, you never get enough of And that's the thing you give me. Oh, we make that beautiful, lovely magic together. Everyone wants to have it. They can get their hands on. You know, they just want more, more, more. Taken from his new solo album, that is the music of my guest today on the program, Don Felder. Let me tell you a little bit about Don Felder. I don't really need to do that, by the way. I don't have to tell you anything about Don Felder. All I really have to do is play this. I mean, isn't that introduction enough? I mean, what more needs to be said than that guitar solo? But look, that would be lazy, just to introduce Don Felder by way of that guitar solo alone, and I am not lazy. So, Don Felder. The Florida-born Don Felder's mind was blown when he saw Elvis on Ed Sullivan. By age 10, he had his first guitar, and by age 15, he had his first band. They were called the Continentals. More on that in a second. Felder never took lessons, but the self-taught musician was a quick study and learned everything by ear. Then, two important moments of tutelage took place. While working at a music school that was founded by a Berkeley grad, Felder was taught the rudiments of theory and notation, which was cool, but the second moment was perhaps more seismic. And that was when Felder learned to play slide guitar from his pal Dwayne Allman. That's kind of like having Shakespeare teaching you how to write plays. Or Steph Curry teaching you to hit threes. Or Kate Blanchett teaching you to act. You get the idea. 
Felder played in bands like the Mondi Quintet and Flo, and he moved from New York to Boston to L.A. Once in L.A., he replaced David Lindley as the touring guitar player for David Blue. He was then recruited to play in the Crosby and Nash Band, and then he got the call from the Eagles, who were in need of some sexy slide guitar. Well, they didn't put it that way. They just said, we need some slide guitar. And Felder said, I can do that. The rest, I suppose you could say, is history. Felder played with the Eagles from 74 to 2001, playing on that winning run of albums that stretched through to 1979. On the border, one of these nights, Hotel California, and the long run. Along the way, Felder collaborated with Stevie Nicks, Kenny Loggins, Diana Ross, the Bee Gees, and Barbra Streisand. He also contributed two songs to the 1981 film Heavy Metal. Look, this is just a partial telling of Felder's CV. If you want all the facts, including playing in the Continentals with Stephen Stills, being bugged by a young Tom Petty to teach him guitar, the straight dope about his 2001 sacking from the Eagles, and his take on Glenn Fry and Don Henley, read his book. It's called Heaven and Hell, My Life in the Eagles, 1974-2001, to and for my money, it's one of the best rock and roll memoirs ever. Felder's life story is unbelievable. Get it, read it, then read it again, then loan it to a friend, and when they don't give it back to you in a year, say, hey, I need my Don Felder book. Then they'll say, what Don Felder book? (laughs) And then you'll have to buy it, uh, which you will do, and you'll read it again. Now, speaking of Felder's life story, it's still going. His third album is American Rock and Roll, and it's a smoldering batch of rootsy grooves, thundering guitar solos, and big, crunchy hooks. The guest list for this album features Slash, Sammy Hagar, Richie Sambora, Bob Weir, Mick Fleetwood, and Alex Lifeson of Rush. Okay, okay, let's get to it. Here's my chat with Don Felder. Enjoy it right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast. or something that resonates with just the human spirit. There was a book I remember reading when I was living in Boston. It's called In Search of the Miraculous by a guy named P.D. Ospinsky. And one of the things he believed was that music had a way of modulating or resonating with the spirit. And so he did all these different experiments experiments with different groups of people playing tritonal music, uh, Chinese music, Egyptian-style music, uh, Indian music, to see how people resonated and responded with it. So I just think certain people have the ability as musicians or singers or writers to be able to create something that stirs people emotionally, that touches people. I've done some benefits for a, a brain damaged institute in Canada where they take people that have had serious brain injuries that are usually in a wheelchair. One guy was a a Canadian soldier that had some shrapnel in his brain from Bosnia. They can't talk. They they can't speak. They they can't really 
do much except if they hear music that they know from before this happens, they respond, they move, they they try to they try to uh, relate to it, and you can see them actually make that movement and try to sing or respond to it. So I, I did this thing where there were about 15 or 20 casualties, uh, patients that had been damaged. And in the back of the room were all of their families, husbands, wives, children. And I just sit and played a, a bunch of older songs, like Eagles songs and stuff that they would have known and sang them. And I'd never seen the reaction from anyone who was so physically impaired as I saw on that particular occasion. And so I believe that some of those people, like B.B. King, have the ability to write, play, and sing in a way that reaches us, uh, where words and lyrics and, and uh, other things can't. How does that inform your own creative process? Like when you're, when you're creating like this new record, which is fabulous, do you keep that stuff in mind, or is the trick to not be conscious of that? I don't think you can make that happen. I think you just do what you do, and some combination of your thought, your talents, your ability, your musical prowess either causes that or it doesn't. And, you know, people go, well, how do I make it? What have I got to do? Do I have to get a manager or do this? It's like, no, you got to do what B.B. King did and Aretha Franklin did. And those people that when you hear them, you're like, oh, my God, the hair stands on the back of your neck. Uh, you know, uh, and that is what makes people successful, that ability to do exactly what you're talking about, in my opinion, uh, musically. But to have the experience that you had with those patients, you must have thought to yourself, well, I've done something right, right? I, I must be on the right track here. Yeah, you know, uh, what it, what it was was that, um, yeah, I think that certain pieces of music, certain songs, certain performers have the ability to to reach through uh, and tickle and connect with the human spirit and others don't. And I don't know how and why that happens. It just does. And uh, uh, so anyway, I'm delighted to have been able to be part of something that has reached so many people in so many different parts of the world uh, in so many different ways. Another thing that happened is I did a show for the United Nations in New York City about, I don't know, five or six years ago. And I don't know if you've ever watched the UN, but there's delegates and representatives from, from all over the world there, and they all have on these ear cups with translators right. speaking in their language, whatever the spokesman is saying. So I'm playing in this room with about 500 heads of states and representatives and presidents and blah, 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 blah. Um, and so when I go to play Hotel California, everybody in the room started singing those lyrics. Didn't matter what language, what country they were from, they knew that song and they could sing it. And it was like, for me, it was a Louisville slugger to the forehead uh, about the impact of how globally that song had reached so many different people all over the world. So uh, how, why, when, I don't know. But all I right. know is I've seen it a couple of times, and it, it's a really wonderful thing to, to experience. It also makes you think about how memory and music are so interlocked. Yeah, so many people say, oh, my God, I grew up with your 
the first time I heard Hotel, I was uh, my senior dance, and I remember this guy came over and asked me to dance, and I didn't want to because it was six and a half minutes long, and I didn't want to dance with him <laughs> for that long. He <laughs> got all these stories that, and parts of things that happened in their lives that relate to these songs, and so you do make a bond. Your memory uh, associates with a certain experience musically. And uh, it's a really interesting thing that I don't know, maybe other than movies, uh, I don't know if, if paintings and that sort of stuff has that same kind of impact on people. Poetry may, uh, literature might uh, reach people that way, but music just has a certain way of oscillating and, and through osmosis kind of joining with the souls of people, you know? Yeah, it's as immediate as like an olfactory sense, you know, like if you smell something like someone cooking something that might make you, you know, get back to a memory immediately as well. That's right. Absolutely. I think you associate that song or that sound or that piece of music to a certain time and place and experience in your life. They're just bonded together. Somehow, I don't know how and why, but it happens. I'm really curious about how your creative process um, like for this record, how how have things changed for you, or are they the same? Like when you put together a record like this, are you um, creatively are you as efficient as you've always been? Has your process changed? Where are you with that? You know, I try not to be repetitive in my creative process. Uh, the only thing that I do every time I start writing is I stop listening. I stop listening to other things on the radio. I stop listening to stuff that I have on my iPhone. I just stop listening because if I don't, I'll sit down to write, and three or four weeks later, I'll come out and go, God, this is a great chord change. And wait a minute, that was like that John Mayer song I was listening to a month ago. <laughs> and so I just I kind of turn it all off so that I don't uh, become uh, – influenced in a very subtle way that shows up in my own writing later. But typically, I have a, probably a, a very unorthodox approach to writing. Like, uh, I'll sit on an airplane with my laptop and just write lyrics, song ideas, uh, a, a key phrase for the title of the song, and then just kind of take that and write a story about it. So you can write it in like a verse rhyming uh, form and then, you know, a chorus form, what the chorus would lyrically say, and then later when I actually find a piece of music or write a piece of music or come up with the rest of the skeletal structure, I have something to put on top of it. Uh, and then, I, then again, I'll be driving down the freeway and grab my iPhone and sing something into my iPhone that just hits me, and if I don't record it right away, it'll be gone in two days, maybe even less. I, sometimes I can't even remember what I had for breakfast that morning, much less what I was singing in my car right. today afternoon. So I just, I record these little bits and pieces. Like today, I'm going to go into the studio and uh, have a new set of drums set up with some mics. We're going to make some drum loops. So I'll just pick up a guitar and just play some ideas. Just start playing, you know, just kind of letting whatever it is that's uh, just dying to get out of me come out and see what it is. And uh, who knows? I, I try not to be too preconceived about what I'm trying to focus on and write a certain song for a certain audience and a certain style. I just let come out whatever's going to come out. And uh, anything that comes out stillborn goes to uh, digital heaven. I hit the erase, erase button and bye-bye. 
gone. So uh, <laughs> I just throw a lot of stuff, just throw a lot of stuff, and see what sticks to the wall. Well, maybe that's what I'm trying to figure out. Is now at this stage in your career, are you? Is it clearer to you, like, oh, this is an idea not worth pursuing? Like, can you weed it out better than than ever? No, uh, and because you really don't know until you breathe enough life into it to see if that inspiration, that idea, that thought, that little musical phrase can grow into something. Uh, I have a concept to do a piece of music that's not a song. Never done anything like this before. So uh, it's going to be an interesting experience to go in and just try to create this thing uh, out of thin air and uh, put together something that I've never done before. But that's the thrill of it all, is being able to step outside the box and do something and try something. And if it turns out great, fantastic. If it doesn't, digital heaven. Gone. See you later. <laughs> well, that, I mean, because I imagine for some artists to to have an idea that doesn't work can also be, at least momentarily, a little discouraging. No, 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 no. You can't expect everything that you attempt in this life to be successful. It never is. Uh, if, if you have success on, you know, two or three out of the ten things that come out really great, I don't put out a record until I think every song on it is really good. Uh, and if you go through listening to American Rock and Roll, you'll hear there's a song on there called Little Latin Lover that I just love because I was down in Argentina. A friend of mine was dating a tango instructor beautiful gal down there she took us to this tango club and i'd never been to a tango club before and i watched these people dancing this very sensuous very passionate kind of uh form of dance uh very erotic and i went that's a song so i wanted to write a song about that and at the same time give myself the framework to play nylon string guitar which is totally different than what you would think quote-unquote American rock and roll would be. Right. There's a couple of really pretty ballads on there. One of them's called The Way Things uh, Have to Be that I actually wrote on piano. I'm a terrible pianist, but for some reason that song came out of me on piano. So I was able to get David Page to play that piano part like a real performer should. Uh, and... Uh, which you did a beautiful job on it for me. Uh, but it just kind of came out that way. It didn't come out with me playing guitar. And it's, it's, a, it's a ballad. I'm not a balladeer per se, but that song came out. And I thought it came out and turned out really well. So we, uh, we put it on the record. So there's a, a wide variety of stuff on there that, uh, you know, isn't just straight Les Paul plugged into a distorted guitar amp and rock and roll it. So... I like to explore all sorts of new, different uh, forms of writing, recording, production, just the whole thing. And what works and turns out really well, I'll put on an album. What doesn't, like I said, bye-bye. She's a dirty girl, and she looks so fine. But all the big stars in Hollywood and fast cars She still needs more Just can't get enough of me Oh baby, why can't you see? 
seems to me like one of your great strengths and you have many don is that you're very open to ideas creatively you're not you're not you know you're not the kind of guy who says well i'm not going to do that because that's outside of my typical experience i if you listen to the stuff that i've written even the stuff as diverse as it is for the eagles records between uh how kind of outside the box hotel california was musically for 1976 Versus how outside the box those shoes were for 1979—it's just—it doesn't really. I think it's just how unique something is, to tell you the truth, and how uh, titillating and enticing it is, alluring to draw you into the music uh, that makes the difference. If everything were, you know, inside the box, life would be a really boring place to be. Right. I like to push myself into new areas. And, you know, one of the things, like on the song Rock You, Joe Satriani is an absolute killer guitar player. Yet, for me, to go into a room with him and set up a guitar amp and him set up a guitar amp and us sit there and train off these solos, write these harmony parts together and, and put that together in less than an hour was really a challenge for me because, you know, Joe plays a whole different style than, than I do, but we found a way to make them both work together and uh, uh, kind of go toe-to-toe without, uh, in a friendly kind of uh, competition. It was great. And uh, But at first I was like, you know, I don't know if I really want to do this. Joe might just blow me away. But it turned out that we, we found a way to make it work. So uh, same thing with... Uh, the other players like Tambora and Orianti, you know, having to be there and playing with them while we're making these records. I love pushing myself outside of that safe zone and into a place where you really have to, you know, you have to dig deep and come up with something new and fun and exciting to, uh, to, to be creative with these new people. That's what it's all about is just throwing yourself into the, into the swimming pool and seeing if you can swim or not. Well, this is kind of a murderer's row of uh, of guests on this on this record, and I'm curious to know what is the secret to uh, a great collaboration. And I and part of it you've kind of already answered is that you know don't be competitive, be open minded. Um, but you know we all we all have an ego, right? So what in terms of you must always have been a good collaborative uh, partner. Well, I'll say that. On each one of these records, the guests that were invited to play on those particular songs, I knew. I knew how they play. I know how they sound. When I wrote that song, The Way Things Have to Be, I had done about 14 or 15 shows with Peter Frampton on Frampton's Guitar Circus. And he used to play this Les Paul through a Leslie that just has this spectacular sound. And when I was playing piano, writing that thing, I kept hearing that tone of Peter playing through that Leslie on that track. So when it got to the point where we had made the track, I kept saying, you know what's missing is that, that Leslie Frampton sound. So I called him up. 
went he knew exact went to a studio in Nashville. He knew exactly what I was talking about. We set it up after we had expired all of our jokes and told all of our boring, funny stories. We managed to uh, <laughs> record this Leslie guitar part in about thirty minutes, and then he sang on the uh, sang on the chorus with me, and it was just it was fun. You know, I knew what I was looking for from Peter, and he was the appropriate guy to play on that record. Slash would have been totally inappropriate to put on that track. Slash was absolutely appropriate to put on American Rock and Roll. There's actually a verse, the next to the last verse, talks about uh, Guns and Roses and Slash and Rose. Right. And so I thought, well, I should get, I should, I should get Slash in to just play, you know, a couple of licks in that verse, and wound up letting him just play the whole song. And then going back in and editing what I thought were the best parts of what he performed and putting them where I thought they should be and mixing accordingly. So uh, it was just it was just a different way of creating and uh, trying to choose the appropriate people to play on the correct songs or and the songs were first. And then I kept thinking, like, you know, there's a song called Limelight that uh, Sambora and Orianti play on. And yeah. I kept thinking, God, who do I, who needs to be on this with me? It's a great shuffle, kind of like a blue shuffle. Sam Bora would be perfect for that. So I went out to a studio. Uh, we started playing together, and about 20 minutes into it, Orianti came walking down the staircase. It's probably 11 o'clock in the morning. She's just getting up. She's got on cut-off shorts and flip-flops and a T-shirt and a baseball hat. Uh, and she's coming down to get a little breakfast, and I've known Orianti since she first moved from Australia to L.A., done a bunch of play, uh, performances with her when she was with Alice Cooper. Uh, we'd play Hotel California together at Alice's charity fundraisers, and we'd jam on Pride and Joy, and just, you know, great player. So I saw her come down the staircase, and I went, I'd completely forgotten that she and Sambora were together, but I said, Orianti, you got to get a guitar and play on this this track and she absolutely just blew me away as a matter of fact that solo may be one of my favorite solos on this album uh she did an incredible job and i didn't, wasn't even expecting her to be there i just went there to get richie to play on it so i wound up with richie and Orianti on that record and so you know it, it some of it just kind of fell together and other things happened so that i knew exactly the sound I was looking for, and I thought the people that would be appropriate for it. Like Steve Gadd was playing at the Hollywood Bowl, I think, with James Taylor or somebody, and he had a day off, so we invited him over to the studio to play on this song called Sun. He was the perfect drummer to play on that track, where before I'd used Jim Keltner on a couple of other tracks that he played on did an incredible job on those songs. So it's, it's like picking the right magician or musician that has the right magic for that particular feel of that song. So talent of talent to select from to paint these songs and, and characters into these, uh, these stories and, and these songs for this album. And also, you know, being around such talented people, I mean, and what a wide range from Satriani to Frampton to Sambora, they're all such different players. Um, do you think that it, that it, 
what what does it reveal to you about your own playing when you're around such profoundly talented people? I, I think the the biggest insight is that everybody that picks up the same instrument will sound entirely different. I don't care if it's the same guitar playing through the same amp. If Richie Sambora plays that guitar, it's going to sound like Sambora. If Satriani plays that guitar, it's going to say like it. Francis plays, it's going to sound like him. If I play it, it's going to sound like me. It's, it's, the, it's the Indian, not the arrow. In other words, it's it's in the hands of the creator. Whoever holds that guitar, like B.B. King, he picks up a guitar and it sounds like B.B. King. It doesn't sound like anybody else. It doesn't sound like John Mayer. It doesn't sound like Hendrix. It doesn't sound like Clapton. It sounds like B.B. King. And so everybody has their own voice on an instrument uh, as, as identifiable and recognizable as actually people that sing as well. So you can you can hear some voices and know exactly who it is within the first verse or the first line or two of the verse. You know it's Springsteen or you know it's Rod Stewart or you know it's Elton John. You know whoever it is, John Mayer. You can tell right away who that person is because their voice is so identifiable. People's musicality is that individually uh, identifiable as well. Their sound uh, is uh, just as unique as their voice. And that voice is something that you're always trying to refine, 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 right? You never, you never just rest on the laurels of that voice. Uh, being a musician is sort of like being a golfer. You'll never master the game. You'll never master the art of guitar. There's always more to learn. There's always so many unique things you can do, whether it's tones, uh, voicings, scales, uh, your approach to production. There's so much more to be gleaned from uh, being a guitarist. And it's just a uh, an incomplete task. It'll be a painting that's never finished, that you can work on it your whole life and be full of joy and happiness and satisfaction, but if you're trying to master something, it ain't going to happen. You'll get good at it, but you won't, you won't master it. Do you think, Don, that you are more creatively alive now than ever? I mean, because it, it seems to me like you're, you're really plugged in. Do, do you feel that you're at a place in your life where the sky's the limit in terms of creativity? Yeah. I'm trying to be exactly that. Uh, that's the thrill and excitement and fun of my life is playing music, recording, touring, uh, and having that just joy and love that I get from doing that. That's what it's all about for me. It's what it has been about for a long time. It's what it's about for me now. You know, I'm kind of curious, and a lot of people who listen to this show are aspiring musicians. Um, in terms of discipline, have you always been a disciplined musician, and do you still – do you find yourself practicing still, or is that necessary? I've, I've always wondered, not being a musician myself. Well, uh, I know during the Eagle Tunnel Freezes Overture, I was playing close to six hours a day. I would have a guitar in my hotel room before we got on the car to go to uh, sound check. I'd play for about an hour in the morning. We'd get to some building, and uh, uh, I would go... Uh, backstage and just keep playing until we went out and did an hour sound check and then we'd be a three-hour show so i would uh spend most of my time playing guitar every day mainly because i did not want to walk out on stage at that level 
and have anyone be disappointed in my performances. And I still feel that way. If you're going to go out on stage and you're going to perform for people, you should be 120% at the peak of your game. And if you're not, then you've got to do what Frampton's doing, is taking a very humble bow out of the business because of his physical diagnosis, which will degenerate to the point where he doesn't want to be, uh, you know, embarrassed by trying to play for his fans and not being able to. Right. So I'm always inspired for as long as I can play and play well to continue doing it. Uh, so that's what drives me today. That's why I'm so creatively inspired to keep doing it as much as I can. And uh, just to close with, is there still one guitar player that you hear that just sounds otherworldly to you? Like, like who who's a guy that still seems just mysteriously gifted to you? You know, uh, there, like I said earlier in this conversation about everyone having a very unique sound. Yeah. Whether it's Gilmore or Hendrix or Clapton or John Mayer or uh, some of the old Stephen Stills acoustic guitar stuff, there's moments of absolute brilliant genius that comes out of all of those players. Uh, Samboro, Satriani, uh, all of those players that were on this record, Frampton, that just... Uh, each in their own voice. I can't. I can't really say one particular, one particular guitarist because there's so many that I admire and respect and, and really enjoy. I always felt that Django Reinhardt was incredibly uh, just just otherworldly to me, just because of the physical limitation and the stuff that he was doing. Um, to me, he's always seemed the most mysterious. Um, but I, you know, that, that's my take. Yeah, I would have to agree with you. He's definitely in the you know top ten of all time guitar players. I would think Les Paul is another one. I just went and ordered a kind of a complete version of all Les Paul CDs because not only did he invent incredible technical things like the cassette and first to use multi track recording and Echoplex and uh, multi track guitar overdubbing harmonies and all this stuff, but the insight and creativity that he had, as well as his technical proficiency for his time, was way, way, way on the front side of anybody else, of anything that anyone else was doing. So you go back and you listen and you go, oh, my God, this guy was doing this in the 50s. Right. Uh, and uh, just way, way, way ahead of everybody else, uh, technically, musically, uh, creatively, and uh, you got to appreciate his gift and his legend will resonate to the point where people will think Les Paul was just the model of an instrument. They won't even know who he was. Right, right. Uh, you know, your record is one of my favorites of the year. I, I just, I can't stop listening to it, and I'm so, uh, I'm so addicted to listening to it from start to finish, um, which no one seems to do anymore these days. But uh, I love it as a song cycle. Well, we we try to make it uh, play as an album. Uh, a long time ago, when it was just vinyl, you would play one side, then you'd want to get up and turn it over and play the B side so you could hear the rest of the album. But And there was a real kind of sequencing concern about what songs you put where and how you end the album and uh, that sort of stuff. So uh, I tried to use that same approach to song placement and order on the album, both in vinyl and in CD, so that uh, it kind of runs as a, as a wonderful kind of experience. You don't play just one song or two songs or then flip over to another uh, MP3. You want to hear the whole thing top to bottom. 
Well, congratulations on a fabulous album. And I know you're a busy guy and I appreciate you taking the time out and uh, being on the program and doing this for us. Oh, thank you so much. I appreciate you taking the time to do this for me too. Well, I thought we had a sweet moment there in the end, uh, Don Felder and I. Uh, for more information about Don Felder, it's very simple. Go to donfelder.com. News, tour dates, music, all that stuff can be found there. Buy his new album, buy his book. You know, if you're a little curious about what went on in the Eagles, all those questions are answered in that book. Uh, read my book as well. I wasn't in the Eagles. So my uh, fights with Joe Walsh are not addressed in my books, but you can still buy them. Just go to alexgreenonline.com. You can buy my book on the Stone Roses. You can, by the way, that's called the Stone Roses, just to keep it convenient. You can buy emergency anthems, the heart goes boom, you know, all my stuff. It's all there. Uh, am I shamelessly promoting myself on my own podcast? Yes, I am. Where else am I going to do it? At some kind of dinner party? That would be weird. Not that I'm at a dinner party, but that I'm promoting myself uh, in between courses. Now, you can find Stereo Embers, the podcast, on all podcast platforms. iHeartRadio, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, Last.fm, iTunes. Did I forget one? No? Is that all of them? Okay. Uh, you can also email me, editor, at StereoEmbersMagazine.com, or follow me on Twitter at EmbersEditor, or follow me on Instagram, EmbersPodcast. Okay? That's a lot of places to find me. If you can't find me any of those places, I'm nowhere to be found. Thank you, as always, for listening to the program. I'll be back next week. Until then, here's my favorite song on Don Felder's new album. This is Little Latin Lover. Enjoy it, and I'll see you next time. Right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast, only on Bombshell Radio. Here she comes dancing, dancing down the street in the moonlight. Every head turns just to watch her dress as she floats by. She's the apple of all of their eyes. She's the devil in an angel's disguise. My little Latin Yeah.